Well, we're going to be back in Isaiah. If you're joining us for the first time, I've been preaching through the book of Isaiah, or to put it, I think, more accurately, the gospel according to Isaiah. We are nearing the end of the second full section. Isaiah 1 through 12 talks about God's purposes in Israel and Judah. And in verses 13, all the way through verse 27, God gives us a vision through Isaiah for his purposes among the nations, how he's going to save the nations into his people. We're going to be in chapter 27 today. At the very end of this section, a kind of denouement for those of you who are literature buffs, that is the falling action that, that settles into a brand new reality, and that is the reality of God's gospel purposes for the world. That's a glorious passage. And because it's so glorious, there's no way that I'm going to be able to do it in one day. I'm going to have to do it over two days. We're going to do half of Isaiah 27 today. We're going to do half of Isaiah 27 next week when we come together. Because Isaiah 27 is essentially at the very heart of it, the gospel according to Isaiah. It contains in it the very mystery of God, the mystery of Christ, that which was only partially revealed in the Old Testament and now has been fully revealed in the incarnation of Christ in the preaching of his apostles that which was only known in part, we now know in full. So we can look at Isaiah 27 through the lens of Jesus Christ and know crystal clear what it is that God has been up to all along. This is also going to be one of those sermons that if you've come in with any number of practical concerns, it's not going to be immediately apparent to you how this particular sermon and this particular passage applies to you. You say, well, I thought that was the purpose of preaching, that we go to the text, we interpret the text, we apply the text, and yes, that's true. There are times where no doubt all of us come in and we have certain concerns about our own lives, about our relationships, and about our finances, about the state of our nation whatever it may be. And there are times where God's word and whatever particular passage we're in gives us answers to those concerns. But there are also times where we come to the Bible and we need to have our questions and our concerns calibrated by God. In other words, we need to come to God's word expecting God to teach us what concerns we should have but don't. And what questions we should be asking, but in our own short-sightedness, perhaps, are not. My hope is that by the end of our time this morning, in the end of Isaiah 27, which will also move over to Romans chapter 11, that the great application would be to our lives the glory of God. And that we would see that the glory of God has everything to do with everything in your life. And that we would leave here, even in our own concerns, learning to trust him more because of his great sovereign grace to us in Jesus. If you have your Bibles with you, and I hope you do, we're going to be in Isaiah 27. If you're not used to handling a Bible, that's okay. Uh, if you don't have one with you, you can grab one from the pew backs in front of you. Take that Bible, open it up right to the 50% mark. It's where you'll find Isaiah. Isaiah halfway through all those pages. 
The big numbers are the chapters, the little numbers are the verses. We're going to be in chapter 27, and we're only going to look at the first six verses this morning. Spend most of our time in the New Testament. Oh my goodness. I'm going to have to preach in fear. Verse 1. Read with me through the first six verses. In that day, the Lord, with his hard and great and strong sword, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. Leviathan, the twisting serpent. And he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. In that day, a pleasant vineyard. Sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. And I keep it night and day, and I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle. Oh, I would march against them. I would burn them up together. Or let them instead lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. In days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and will fill the whole world with fruit. This is the word of the Lord. May he sanctify us according to his word. There's truth. His word is truth. The big idea of this particular part of this particular passage, my sermon in a sentence, so to speak, for those of you who are taking notes, is that God exalts his glory by sending the gospel to the nations in order to save Israel. God magnifies his glory by sending the gospel to the nations in order to save his people Israel. That's what we see here. Looking at verse 1, follow along with me. Here we see an introduction to Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, the twisting serpent. Leviathan's used in a number of different ways in the Old Testament, but here Leviathan stands as something of immense power, of supernatural power that is set against the creator God. And referring to it as the serpent, as you see there in verse one, Isaiah is using the same word that is found in Genesis chapter three of the serpent or the snake that tempted Eve. That behind all of God's enemies, those enemies that according to Isaiah 24 are conquered by the almighty and sovereign Lord, who stands with his boot on their necks, so to speak. That behind all of these enemies is one great enemy. And here Isaiah is looking forward to that day when this serpent, this Leviathan, is pierced and killed, just as God promised would happen all the way back in Genesis 3. He told the woman, I will, your seed, I'll give you a seed, and your seed will be at war with the seed of the serpent, and he will crush his head. Well, Isaiah is intentionally using the same language to evoke in us a memory of that fateful day all the way back in Genesis 3 so that we would know exactly what it is that he sees coming. That he sees in that day, the beginning of verse 1, that phrase, as we've noted a number of times, has a twofold implication. 
that the prophets looked off in the far distance and they saw a mountain. But if any of you have ever driven to Colorado and you see a single mountain off into the distance and you get closer, what you find is that one mountain is really a mountain range. You've got one mountain that's up close and you've got another mountain that is off in the distance, but they are all part of one and the same range and Isaiah is seeing the same thing. Then when he says in that day, what he's seeing is both an inauguration of something and at the same time, the consummation of something. He's seeing the inauguration of the defeat of Leviathan, that is in the incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the head of the serpent has been crushed. And yet it has not been finally and ultimately defeated and done away with once and for all. That happens at the end of the age, at the consummation. That what was inaugurated at the cross will be consummated at Christ's return. And the prophet saw this entire period from inauguration to consummation as one great day from start to finish. A victory march, so to speak, of what Christ has accomplished on the cross. And so through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, oh, the New Testament is clear, the devil is a defeated foe. Well, in verse two, Isaiah is gonna transition from this violent day when the devil is ultimately defeated to a blessed day. Look at this. In that day, a pleasant vineyard, sing of it. The Lord is his keeper, he he waters it. Unless anyone punish it, he keeps it. That is, he guards it night and day, and he has no wrath. All the way back in Isaiah chapter 5, you may remember from several months ago that Isaiah referred to the kingdom of Israel, the nation of Israel, as a rotten vineyard full of stinky fruit. That he had planted it in order to produce good fruit, and what it produced was stink fruit. But here Isaiah sees another vineyard. That on that day, the Lord will plant a pleasant vineyard, literally a wine-producing vineyard. And wine in the Old Testament into the New Testament is always the sign of joy in the Messianic kingdom. That's why Jesus' first miracle was turning water to wine. That the gospel of of, of, of the kingdom of Christ was being proclaimed because the king was there. And he was showing, as the Old Testament had prophesied, that the Messianic kingdom was upon us in the coming of the Messiah. Well, here we see a wine-producing, a joy-producing, messianic vineyard. God was angry with the former vineyard for producing stink fruit, but as we saw in a previous chapter, chapter 26, just last week, God is now at peace with this vineyard. This theme of peace is repeated in verse 4, as you see, where we see that God now has no wrath toward this vineyard. He keeps it clean and he keeps it weed free. Let me ask you a question. Where else in the Bible do we see a vineyard kept by God in which the good vine produces fruit and the dead branches are pruned, burned up, and thrown away? John 15, 1. I am the vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes it so that it bears more fruit. Under the old covenant, Israel was a rotten vineyard that produced stinky fruit. But Isaiah sees a day when there will be another vineyard under a better covenant. 
And that vineyard is going to grow out of the true vine, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. But we see in verse 5 that God is not done with the fruitless branches of Israel. God is still yet merciful. True, some may be stomped out and burned, but look at that word at the beginning of verse 5, or that is the word of God's mercy. They might be stomped, they might be burned, or there's another option. Let them come back to me. Let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. That they might be grafted back into the vine and be at peace with the vine dresser. This future hope for Israel is at the heart of Isaiah's prophecy in verse 6. In days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. Up to this point in Isaiah, we've seen the names Israel and Jacob used in different ways. He uses them in the one sense to talk specifically about Abraham's physical descendants, that is, the kingdom of Israel, ethnic Israel. But he also uses the terms to describe God's end-time people comprised of all nations. That is the true multi-ethnic Israel. This is what the Apostle Paul means at the end of his letter to Galatians when he calls the church the Israel of God. And Isaiah means it in both ways. But who exactly is Isaiah talking about here? Well, as with any other part of the Bible, context is key. In verses 1 through 3, we saw that Isaiah sees a better vineyard than Israel. And this new fruitful vineyard is going to take over that old stinky vineyard after the serpent is crushed by Messiah. So here he's not talking about the kingdom of Israel, but a new post-crucifixion, post-resurrection Israel. And the either-or language that culminates in verse 5, as we just saw, seems to suggest that Isaiah isn't talking about multi-ethnic Israel either. Well, if he's not talking about ethnic Israel, the kingdom of Israel, and he's not talking about multi-ethnic Israel, that is the church, then who's he talking about? Who is this Israel, this Jacob in verse 6? Who are those that choose the or option in verse 5? I want you to hang with me while I build my case. Turn with me to your left to 2 Kings 19. 2 Kings chapter 19. Beginning in verse 30. And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downwards and bear fruit upwards. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord will do this. Who is it that's speaking these words in 2 Kings 19? Look all the way back up to verse 20. It'll give you a clue. It's Isaiah. And these words that he speaks here are repeated verbatim in Isaiah chapter 37, verses 31 and 32. 
We're not going to go there because it's just the same words all over again. And who is it that Isaiah says will one day take root and bear fruit? Not all of Judah, but he says a surviving remnant. A Judah within Judah. And so Isaiah mentions this surviving remnant elsewhere. Not just here, but he talks about them elsewhere. And so turn once again to your right, back to Isaiah, but this time to chapter 4. Isaiah chapter 4. Normally don't make you flip pages this often, but it's good for you. Got to work out those atrophied forearm muscles. Bible turning, page turning muscles. Isaiah chapter 4. Beginning in verse 2, in that day, talking about that future eschatological end times day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and the honor of who? The survivors of Israel. Who are the survivors of Israel? Well, they're the same surviving remnant that we see all the way back in 2 Kings 37. And here we see that these survivors... As Isaiah said, all the way back in 2 Kings, are going to bear fruit. That they will bear fruit because according to Isaiah chapter 4, they're part of the branch of the Lord. And the branch of the Lord, as we looked at several months ago, is Messiah. It's Jesus Christ. That the surviving remnant is a remnant of ethnic Jews that have not rejected the gospel like the rest of Israel, but who are by faith now found in Christ. And according to Isaiah 27, verse 6, which we had just looked at, this surviving remnant will take root and will bear fruit all over the world. But how in the world is that going to happen? Because that is not at all what the Israel of Isaiah's day looks like. How is it going to happen? Well, the Apostle Paul takes up the riddle of Isaiah 27.6 and answers it in Romans chapter 11. One more flip, and you won't have to flip anymore, I promise. Romans chapter 11. I was telling Kathy this morning, there are a number of passages in the Bible, well, really all of the Bible, apart from the power of the Spirit, a preacher feels inadequate to preach. But there are particular passages that this preacher feels especially inadequate to preach, and Romans 11 is one of them. And so I pray that, ask that you would pray for me as I preach to you that I would be faithful to Paul's argument here in the chapter. At the end of chapter 10, Paul reminds his reader of how Israel had rejected God's word. That's what Isaiah had been prophesying. And how, as a result, God's word has now gone out to the nations, to the Gentiles. And so the question arises, is God now finished with Israel? Those whom Paul calls elsewhere, my kinsmen according to the flesh, physical Israel, ethnic Israel. And he answers in verse 1, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul says, of course not. Look at me. I'm a Jew 
And I've not only been called by the grace of Christ, but have been sent out as his apostle. I am proof in the flesh that God isn't done with Israel. And he goes on, beginning in verse 2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they've demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. And what was God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Verses 3 and 4 simply explain what Paul asserts in verse 2. He's saying it's always been this way. There has always been a remnant in the middle and in the midst of apostate Israel. It was true in the days of Elijah. It was true in the days of Isaiah. And it's still true today, Paul says. In verse 5, so too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. In order to understand the argument of Romans chapter 11, you have to understand the first six verses. And Paul's argument is relatively simple. Has God rejected Israel? Answer, absolutely not. Look at me, Paul says, as an example. And he goes on to say that there's always been a surviving remnant. And that remnant doesn't survive ultimately because of their bloodline, but because of God's sovereign electing grace. Paul explains further in verse 7. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor. Eyes that wouldn't see, ears that couldn't hear, down to this very day. Quoting Isaiah there. And then he quotes the psalmist David saying, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Apostate Israel, those who rejected the promises of God, didn't enter into the rest that they were seeking. They had eyes that couldn't see. They had ears that wouldn't hear just as the prophet and the psalmist taught. No, we see all the way in verse 7 that only the elect, according to God's grace, obtained it. And the elect that Paul's talking about in verse 7 is not the elect from all nations. It is elect Israelites. It is the surviving remnant from 2 Kings and Isaiah chapter 4 and Isaiah 27. And is this surviving remnant, how is it that they come to obtain the grace of God? Oh, well, that's the answer that Paul sets out to give us in the verses that follow, beginning in verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more would their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm not speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. 
Paul's point in these handful of verses is, yes, I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. But do you know why I go all over the place telling everyone about what God is doing among the Gentiles through the power of the gospel? Do you know why this is my report everywhere I go? Because God has always had a remnant according to his election of grace, according to his purposes. And it is by my ministry among the Gentiles that God's elect remnant in Israel is made jealous. But what exactly does Paul mean by jealous? He doesn't mean it in the same way that our children might be jealous of one another. He's not meaning that they see what's going on and they get mad and sulk when their brother or sister gets something that they don't have. They're not being pouty faces. By saying that Israel will be jealous, he means it in a similar way that James uses it in James chapter 4 when he says that God is jealous for his people. By saying that Israel will be jealous, Paul means that the elect of Israel will, will deeply yearn for something so as to do anything to come into its possession. God promised Abraham that through his seed, Abraham would be a blessing to the nations. Elsewhere, the Apostle Paul says that this was the gospel that was preached beforehand to Abraham. The same gospel, he says, that I'm preaching among the Gentiles. That in fact, God's promise to Abraham has been fulfilled. Abraham is a blessing to the nations through his seed. And that seed, singular, is the one and only Jesus Christ who is now a blessing to the nations as he brings men from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation into the, into the saving knowledge of what he has done for them as they've been united to him. So God is using Paul's ministry to open the eyes and the ears of elect Israel so that they'll finally connect the dots between God's promises to their fathers and the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that so they will say, oh, that's what God has been doing all this time. I want to be part of that. That's the grace that I want to obtain. Verse 7. Here's Paul's logic. Most of the kingdom of Israel, that is ethnic Israel, is hardened to the gospel so that the gospel would go out to the nations. And when the gospel goes out to the nations, the elect Israel will see it, become jealous for it, yearn for it, and believe in it. Give me some of that. And when they do believe, Paul says, their radical conversions can only be explained in terms of resurrection from the dead. Look at verse 15. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean? That is, their believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. What does it mean but life from the dead? What does it mean other than Ezekiel 37 that these dry bones have been brought to life? The language here is not implying that it was God's rejection of Israel that led to the re reconciliation of the world, but rather it was Israel's rejection of God. That's what we saw in verses 8 through 10. And in light of such a hard-hearted rejection, 
How do we explain such a radical change of these hard hearts? And here's how. They have been brought from death to life by the power of the Holy Spirit, regenerating their hearts and causing them to freely respond in faith to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The very same gospel that was preached beforehand to their father Abraham. They have been born again. They are new creations in Christ. And that's what Paul explains in verse 16. That if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, well then so are the branches. Follow Paul's logic. That if the dough, which is Jesus Christ, is holy, so too are all of those in the dough who are in Christ. If Christ is doughy, you're doughy. That's Paul's point. He says, let me put it another way. If the root, that is Jesus, is holy, well then so too are the branches. How is it that a Jew can know that he is part of the surviving remnant of Judah? Answer, he has been raised from spiritual death to life through union with Jesus Christ. The fulfillment of all of God's promises to their father Abraham. But now, beginning in verse 17, Paul is gonna more clearly distinguish elect Israel from Gentile believers. He's gonna turn his attention to these non-Jewish believers, and he's gonna tell them, many of whom had been savagely persecuted by the Jews in their day, don't forget that you were called by the same grace. Don't get cocky. Don't start thumbing your nose at the Jews. Look at verse 17. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who supports the root, but the root that supports you. If you haven't done so yet, this is, this, this is the part where I'm going to need you to put on your thinking caps. And I'm going to need you to hang with me because we're going to have to just for a couple of minutes do a little bit of theological heavy lifting. And if at any time in the next few minutes you feel completely overwhelmed or mind numbed by what we're talking about, just peek forward to verses 33 through 36 and remember that Paul felt the same way. The olive tree in verse 17 is likely not speaking of Jesus Christ. Because according to the truth of verse 16, no branch grafted into Christ will be cut off from Christ. Once you're in the dough, there's no getting out of the dough. Christ is doughy, you're doughy. You don't stop being doughy if you're in Christ. That was Paul's point, remember? Well, if the olive tree isn't Christ, then what is it? I think it's referring to God's covenant with Abraham. So hang with me. In Genesis 15 and 17, God made a covenant with Abraham. And we see more clearly in Genesis 17, we don't have time to go there today for lack of time, in a few weeks in our covenant theology study on Wednesday nights, we'll look at it in depth. But what we see in Genesis 17 is that this covenant is dichotomous by nature. Why are you using those big words? Let me explain what I mean. A dichotomy is something 
that is divided into two totally different things. As humans, we are dichotomous creatures. We are both body and soul. One person, two parts, a dichotomy. The Abrahamic covenant is a dichotomous covenant because it's one covenant with two parts. It contains physical, earthly promises, and it contains spiritual, heavenly promises. The physical promises of the covenant were all fulfilled in Abraham's physical offspring, Israel, under the old covenant. But according to God's plan, the fulfillment of these physical promises in Israel and in the land of Canaan and in Jerusalem were only temporary. The kingdom of Israel wasn't an end in itself. It was pointing to something greater and beyond itself. The kingdom of Israel was a shadow of the kingdom of Christ yet to come or be established. And so the fulfillment of these physical promises under the old covenant in the kingdom of Israel anticipated the fulfillment of greater spiritual promises. Abraham's many physical descendants in the kingdom of Israel and the city of Jerusalem in the land of Canaan were only shadows that would ultimately give way to the substance of the promise to Abraham that is even more numerous spiritual descendants in the kingdom of Christ, the church as a new Jerusalem set in the heart of a greater promised land that is the new heavens and the new earth. All that we see under the old covenant is really just a shadow of a greater covenant based on greater promises that is yet to come. One covenant, two parts. And once those spiritual promises were fulfilled, once the anti-type has come, that is Christ, the type, the pattern, is no longer needed. Once the substance is revealed, the shadow has served its purpose. They have become, according to the writer of the Hebrews, obsolete. It is a dead branch that has been broken off, so to speak. What does this have to do with our passage? The Abrahamic covenant is here referred to as an olive tree with a nourishing root. And that root is the promised fulfillment in the covenant of grace by Abraham's seed. It is the promise of it is all of those spiritual promises that would ultimately be fulfilled by Abraham's seed, Jesus Christ. But not every branch in the olive tree is connected to the nourishing fruit, or root rather. Only a remnant of branches will survive. Therefore, the physical descendants of Abraham, all of whom received the earthly promises but apostatized and reject the spiritual promises of Messiah were broken off of the olive tree because they ultimately proved not to be part of the nourishing root. They proved to be spiritually dead. 
This is exactly what the Apostle Paul means in Romans chapter 9, verse 6, when he says, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. They may have all been part of the tree, but they all weren't part of the root. One covenant, two parts. And so that's why Paul tells them. Remember, he's explaining all of this to Gentile believers and by implication to us this morning. He says, you were part of a wild olive shoot, that is another tree altogether, and yet you have been brought by God's grace to believe in Israel's Messiah according to God's gospel promises revealed to Abraham. That is that covenant of grace promised in the Abrahamic covenant, those spiritual promises, you've been grafted into those, into that nourishing root. And you non-Jews have been grafted by grace into true Israel and you now share in that nourishing root with them as adopted sons of Abraham by faith in Christ. All according to God's purposes in electing grace. That is why Paul tells these Gentiles and why he tells us, don't grow conceited. Don't get cocky. Don't grow arrogant toward unregenerate apostate Jews. Coincidentally, this is why Martin Luther's anti-Semitism was such an egregious sin because it's in clear violation of Paul's own exhortation in Romans 11. You were saved by the grace of God according to promises given to Abraham and fulfilled in Christ. It was because of nothing that you've done. Would you now believe that God can't do the same among apostate Israel? Do not get haughty. Don't get arrogant. The grace of God extinguishes all boasting You are here because of grace. So Paul says, you're not anything special. You didn't graft yourself in. You were grafted in by God. Moreover, branches don't give life to the root. The root gives life to the branches. Whatever you've obtained, you've obtained it because it was given to you, not because you earned it. You've obtained it by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. See also chapters three through eight in Romans. Why is Paul telling them all of this? Okay, take a breath, we just got through it. Why is Paul telling them all of this? It's because in verse 19 he anticipates them drawing a false conclusion. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Well, that's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through the faith. Do not become proud, but fear. For if God didn't spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. And so in response to the statement of verse 19, Paul says, yes, that may be true, but Israel was broken off because of their unbelief, not because God thought you Gentiles were so much better. You weren't an upgrade. So hear me. If you persevere in your pride, you will not persevere in your faith. And if you don't persevere in your faith, you'll end up with the rest of the natural branches who rejected the gospel, cut off and burned up. So humble yourself and walk by faith in holy fear. 
Look at verse 22. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided that you continue in His kindness. You and I are motivated to persevere in our faith by two things. Number one, we are motivated to persevere in our faith by God's kindness in choosing us and saving us according to His great purposes in electing grace. But secondly, you and I are motivated to persevere in our faith because of God's severity. That he will cut off, just like apostate Israel, all those who do not persevere to the end. Brothers and sisters, God, the Bible always holds God's sovereignty and our responsibility in perfect tension. We might think that the two are opposed to one another when in reality, in the Bible, they're best friends. They are like peanut butter and jelly. Is God sovereign in electing some to eternal life? Yes. Are believers personally responsible for responding in obedience to the gospel and persevering in faith? Yes. And when we do, we therefore prove to be God's elect. God's warnings don't undermine God's election. They strengthen it because they are the means of grace whereby God gets his elect all the way home safely. So God's elect perseveres in the faith to the glory of God's mercy and grace. And those who don't persevere prove themselves to not be among God's elect and they are cut off to the glory of God's justice. Both of those become motivations for our persevering in the faith. By the way, this is one of the reasons why we join a church, isn't it? So that we might lock arms together, be committed to a particular group of Christians, and we might help one another persevere in this life so that all of us might get home safely to Jesus and no men are left behind. And women, I meant that all-encompassing so that no man is left behind. That is the very essence of church membership. It's so that we would be faithful to persevere. But Paul goes on in verse 23 to explain why God's electing grace is such amazing grace. Just because Israel may be apostate today doesn't mean they'll be apostate tomorrow. Look at verse 23. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Brothers and sisters, this is exactly what we saw in Isaiah 27, verses 4 and 5. Would that I have thorns and briars... I would march against them and I would burn them up altogether. Or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Oh, let them make peace with me. This is the exact same picture that Paul's painting in Romans 11. Yes, Israel on the whole has rejected Messiah, 
but don't give up on them. God is being kind and patient and forbearing with them and his kindness is meant to lead them to repentance. That's Romans chapter two. There is still time for them to respond to the gospel and embrace Messiah, to embrace Christ. And if they do, if they lay hold of his protection and they make peace with him through Messiah, God will graft them back into the olive tree and into the nourishing root of his covenant of grace. And he tells these Gentiles, verse 24, that they should consider their own conversions as proof of God's ability to do it. Remember what Paul says elsewhere, Ephesians chapter two, he tells these Gentiles that you were once separated from Christ, you were alienated from Israel, you were strangers to the covenants of promise, you were without hope in the world, and yet God still managed to save you and graft you into his covenant of grace. But the Jews have all those things you didn't have. They have an advantage, as Paul says earlier in the letter to the Romans. So if he can do the harder thing in saving you Gentiles, why do you not think that he can't do the easier work of saving his elect from Israel who did have all of these promises? He can do it. And so for your own good, Paul says, verse 25, let me learn you something. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. He says, so that you don't be wise in your own sight, I don't want you to think that you're operating by your own wisdom here. I've got to inform you of something. Because if you don't get this right, you're going to get the gospel wrong. And if you get the gospel wrong, you won't be able to persevere in your faith. And so he tells them about the mystery of God. And that mystery includes a partial hardening of Israel. Or rather, a hardening of a part of Israel. And of course, if only a part of the nation has been hardened, then what's the implication? According to Paul's own personal testimony that part of it has not been hardened. See also Paul. And he says that this hardening is, quote, until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. What is it that you and I should think about that word, until? Some faithful believers argue that the word until implies stages, as if the next stage won't happen until a previous stage is complete. And so once the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, then the hardening will be reversed and there will be a mass conversion of Jews just prior to the end of the age. Some of you perhaps have been taught that. But until does not always imply stages. For instance, if a man tells a woman, I'm going to love you until the end of time. He's not saying, I'm going to love you to the end of time, and then at the end of time, I'm going to begin looking for someone else. He's saying, my love for you and the end of time are coterminous. They're happening at the same time, and they will end at the same time. Let me give you another example from the Bible. Philippians 1, verse 3, Paul writes that God has started a work in us and will complete it, quote, until the day of Christ. Does that mean that God will do this work in you until a certain point and then there will be a great reversal? No, it means that he will do this work until the work is done. 
So this word until that we see here in verse 25 can be understood in different ways and context is key for understanding how Paul is using it here. And I would argue that based on everything that we've seen in Romans 11 up to this point thus far, until does not mean a future stage, rather it means the same thing as Philippians 1. The partial hardening of Israel and the fullness of the Gentiles are coterminous. They're happening at the same time and they will end at the same time because verse 26, in this way, all Israel, that is all of elect Israel, will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. In this way, does it refer to the mass conversion of Jews at the end of history after the fullness of Gentiles? It means that all of God's elect in Israel will be saved in the way that Paul explained back in verses 11 to 14. Israel hardened themselves to the gospel so that the gospel would go out to the nations. And when the gospel goes out to the nations, elect Israel will see it, become jealous for it, and believe in it just as the Gentiles do. Because their deliverer has come from Zion in the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Christ. And now he is being preached among the nations, including Denton, Texas. And through the power of the gospel between the first and second coming of Christ, every single one of God's elect among Israel will be saved and will be brought into the covenant of grace. Every one of God's elect in Judah, the survivors of Jacob, will in fact survive by God's grace. But right now, this may seem really unlikely and really daunting. But verse 28, it is a certainty. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. When he calls them enemies here, Paul is referring to unconverted ethnic Jews. See that in Acts 13, for instance, making themselves enemies by rejecting the gospel. But their rejection of the gospel, he says, has led to your conversion. And so they've proved to not just be enemies, but to be enemies for your sake. But that doesn't mean that among those unconverted Jews of Paul's day that have proven enemies to the gospel, that there are not still some who would be counted among God's elect and who would come to believe in the gospel. See also the apostle Paul. Because the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so, too, so they too have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also come to receive mercy. Paul isn't talking about future conversion. For the third time in this chapter, Paul says, now. Verse 5. At this present time. He says, this isn't what God is going to do at the end of the age. He says, this is what God is doing now. Yes, it looks like they're all chopped off. Yes, it looks like all of their hearts are hardened. But God will show mercy when? 
At some future date after the return of Christ? No. He says now, God's elect within Israel will be converted now during the fullness of the Gentiles. And Paul says, I am part of that now generation. And wherever the gospel is being preached between now and the return of Christ, that generation is a now generation. Notice how Paul's doctrine of election doesn't dissuade him from evangelism among the Jews. As if they're all going to be saved by some other means than the gospel in the distant future. No, Paul is energized in his evangelism because it will be through the power of God and the gospel, both in hardening and regenerating, that God's elect among the Jews will be saved. And Paul's confidence in evangelism should be our confidence in evangelism. That's why Romans chapter 9, about God's sovereignty and election, and Romans chapter 10, about the preaching of the gospel to all people for Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Those are Romans 9 and 10 are not enemies. They are best friends. They don't discourage evangelism. According to Paul here in Romans 11, they encourage and ignite and electrify evangelism. Because it's the very means of grace whereby God accomplishes all of his redemptive purposes in the world, not only among the nations, but for the surviving remnant of Judah as he promised. That is what you and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, have been grafted into. That's thrilling. It's big. It's huge. So Paul says in verse 32, God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have, keywords, mercy on all. That is, all of elect Israel will be saved by his grace, both Jews and Gentiles. The deliverer has come from Zion and his word is going out and the nations are coming in. The age of mercy on all, in verse 32, is now. It has been inaugurated in the life, death, resurrection of Christ as he has defeated Leviathan the serpent. And in the preaching of the gospel, beginning with the apostles, even now to the present day, God's people are on their victory march, declaring to all nations that ding dong, the witch is dead. We win. Come join us. Isn't that what the people of God and the Spirit say in Revelation 22? Come. Come with us on our march to Zion. Come. And know Messiah. Know the Lord Jesus Christ. Make peace with him. Of course, you can see in verses 33 to 36, Here's Paul's application to such mind-bending, heart-stretching, history-guiding, God's sovereignty-exalting, man's responsibility-exhorting truths that we've seen in the previous 32 verses. Oh, that's what he says. Beginning of verse 32. Oh. Oh, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. 
How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Brothers and sisters, there are times when we get to the end of a sermon and that is the application we need to hear so that the glory of God would consume and shape and calibrate the way that we see every fabric of reality. This is what God's doing in the world. And the zeal of the Lord will do it. 